Romans chapter 5, verse 16 through verse 27. This is the passage that I want us to look at in our time together this morning. You know, we live in an increasingly secular world. Um, There are probably more agnostics, atheists now than at any other point in the history of our nation. And many have pointed out that throughout the Western world, it seems that biblical Christianity and confidence in the Bible is something that is diminishing as far as cultural acceptance is concerned. That's not to say that the church is on the way out. No matter how society has persecuted God's people, God's building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet, it's true that more people now identify as religiously unaffiliated than ever before. Uh, Back in March, I think it was Gallup that released a study that for the very first time in our nation's history, less than half of the citizens of this country are members of a church or a particular religious organization. I think the number was down to 47% or something like that. It's an all-time low. And so as the culture we live in becomes more secular, as it moves further and further away from the Bible, from Judeo-Christian ethic, inevitably it's going to move further into emptiness. And that means a major crash is coming whenever the new gods that humanity has forged for itself prove to be an empty disappointment. But the world's philosophers, they've always struggled with these kinds of questions. What's the ultimate purpose of life? What's the meaning of human existence? Is there any particular purpose in history? Is history headed somewhere? Anthony Hochma, in a book entitled The Bible in the Future, said that our generation is one that's strangled by fear. Fear for man, fear of what man might do based upon what he's done in the past, fear of what might happen in the future. And he says there's a cry for understanding, for an answer to the question, what does it all mean? Is there an end to all of this? But there doesn't seem to be an answer Certainly for the secularist, there is no answer at all. If you were here this past Wednesday night in our introductory session to the book of Revelation, uh, I made the point that really there are three basic views of what history is. You could all boil it down to three basic views. Um, In history, man has generally approached history as if it were on one hand, Uh, cyclical, a cycle of events that just repeats itself over and over again like a dog chasing its tail. Uh, This is the view of the ancient Greeks. It's the view of Hinduism and a lot of Eastern religion. That doesn't work for some folks. Others would say that naturalism has provided the answer, evolutionary theory has provided the answer that there was a beginning a big bang, but it was really just an accident. From that point forward, history is sort of moving along a linear progression, but it's moving into nothingness. And that's often the view of naturalism or secular humanism, which really is the popular religion of our time. 
But there is a third view, and the third view is the biblical view. The Christian worldview of history that stands in opposition and distinct from those other views. And the view of the Bible is this. God created us. Where did history begin? Well, the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So history is his story. He's the architect, and it's playing out according to his design, which means that it has a very clear direction. It had a beginning, and the Bible says that history will have an ending. And really, to sum it up, the Bible says that history is headed toward what Scripture refers to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That's a term that's used throughout Scripture to describe final judgment. It's a term that's used to refer to what the New Testament calls the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus comes, human history will be wrapped up. Christ will establish his rule and his reign upon the earth. And we long for that day. The Maranatha cry of the church is, even so come Lord Jesus. So someone says, well, what's history moving toward? It's moving toward the day of the Lord. And that's something that the prophet Amos points out here in this passage that we're going to look at. Amos chapter 5, beginning with verse number 16. Let's read this passage together. The Bible says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who were skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. God says, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth your king and Cayune your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the coming day of the Lord. Amos is referring to the coming day of the Lord. Now keep in mind, by way of context, that this fifth chapter serves as uh, a lamentation raised by the prophet Amos over the sins of his wayward generation. God's people had become wayward. Uh, Economic prosperity had fostered a sense of spiritual complacency. It gave rise to idolatry and hypocritical worship, and the result of this was a complete breakdown of social relationships. 
There was a lack of social ethics among Amos' contemporaries. Those who were the leaders in Israel were taking advantage of the poor so that they might line their own pockets. And uh, social life had spiraled into chaos. And yet there was a whitewash, thin veneer of religious coating over all of it that God said really made him sick. And so he calls Amos uh, and sends Amos into the northern kingdom of Israel to preach what's really a message of judgment. And as we've been working our way through the message of Amos, it's almost as if Amos has not let up off the gas for five chapters. He's not stopped to take a breath. If you feel like he's not stopped to take a breath as far as his message of judgment is concerned, uh, you're right. I mean, it's been nonstop preaching And which, by the way, it has to be that way in order for God's prophet to get the attention of God's people. But evidently, in Amos' day, there were those who were anticipating the day of the Lord. They were anticipating that coming day when God would be victorious over all of his enemies and Israel would be established as the kingdom. The kingdom would be given to the Israelites They were looking forward to that even while they were oblivious and uh, even smug in their own sinfulness. So this is the subject that Amos is dealing with here in these verses. Now what will the day of the Lord involve according to what Amos is saying in this text? Well, number one, he says that the coming day of the Lord will be a day of divine visitation. It will be a day of divine visitation. You'll notice verse 16, he uses the language of lamentation. That word therefore in verse 16 connects this passage to the previous passage where Amos has just been exposing the sin and the hypocrisy of his generation. Uh, he's, He's been called by God to preach against a people whose lifestyle did not correspond with their lips. They were saying one thing, but they were living another. And so the invitation had been extended to God's people for them to repent, to seek the Lord and live, to seek good and not evil. In verse 15, God called upon them to hate evil, to love good, to establish justice in the gate. But because no repentance had been shown, now in verse 16, Amos says the time is coming when there will be wailing, weeping, lamentation in the streets. Why is that? Well, because they were headed toward a confrontation with the Lord of hosts. You'll notice that the Lord of hosts is a phrase that's used at least three times there in verses 14, 15, and 16. It's this idea of the God of angel armies, the God who commands the angels and the host of heaven, the God before whom all of us are accountable. This is the Lord of hosts. That's what's meant in that expression. So there's a divine visitation that's coming. God says, I'm going to pass through your midst there in verse 17. So a few things about this. Notice there's an imminent arrival that's associated with the day of the Lord. God says, I'm going to pass through your midst. And when he does, God says it will be cause for mourning. The idea is he's going to pass through in judgment. Now, at some point, the people had come to center their hopes around the day of the Lord. And again, this is a subject that's mentioned frequently throughout the Old Testament prophets. 
And often, the day of the Lord refers to various times in history when God carried out acts of judgment. Uh, When God broke into history to intervene in history in some specific way. As the Lord of history, it's certainly his right to do that. Isaiah chapter 13 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Behold, the day of the Lord comes with cruel anger, fierce wrath, to make the land a desolation and destroy sinners from the land. Isaiah uses the language of of, uh, signs in the heavens as these signs like constellations uh, not giving their light the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light. All of this is associated with the future day of the Lord, which we know Matthew 24, Jesus says, is going to be associated with his second coming. So when you see that phrase in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, notice that it refers to uh, little d-a-y of the Lord, various times when God has acted in history to bring about judgment on a specific city, Uh, or a specific nation, but ultimately it points to the capital D-A-Y, Day of the Lord, which we know is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns in judgment on those who are unbelieving, a Christ-rejecting wicked world, and he's going to establish his own kingdom upon the earth, the millennial kingdom, all of this is associated with this Old Testament prophecy of the Day of the Lord. So Amos is using this phrase both in verse 18 as well as down in verse number 20. So it's this future time in which God is going to intervene in history both to judge the world and save his people. So one thing that you need to keep in mind about the day of the Lord is that it involves both judgment as well as blessing. Uh, It involves this idea of both judgment as well as salvation. It's a time of future reckoning, but it's also a time of future blessing whereby the kingdom of God's Son is going to be established and believers are going to rule and they're going to reign with Him and uh, it'll be a wonderful time in the future for God's people. So all of this is progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament and then we get into the New Testament and we see it in the light of Christ and the gospel. But you see, in Amos' generation, God's people were sort of anticipating the day of the Lord uh, as if it would be just judgment upon the unbelieving nations, but it would be a cakewalk for them. Now keep in mind, they were anticipating the day of the Lord all while living disobedient lives. And so Amos comes along and says to God's disobedient people, you really have no reason to anticipate with enthusiasm the coming day of the Lord because let me tell you something, God's going to deal with you just like he's going to deal with the nations. And so it's a sobering message. So there's an imminent arrival associated with this day of the Lord that Amos is referring to, but notice he's correcting their assumptions. They had lived under an incorrect assumption, longing for the day of the Lord as if it would be a light thing, looking forward to the day of the Lord because God would unleash vengeance on their enemies and make them the rulers of the world. All the while, there was this major disconnect between their stated belief and their actual behavior. One person expressed it this way, 
there was an overall fascination with the future, but that fascination with the future had not led them to live holy and righteous lives in the present. Now, let me just go ahead and say something. In that way, they were not unlike a lot of people that I meet in the church. People who were so interested in prophecy, people who were so interested in eschatology, people who were so interested in the doctrine of last things and the second coming of Jesus and all of that, but all the while they're not interested in loving their neighbor. They're not interested in showing grace and mercy and compassion in their relationships. They're not interested in giving to support the cause of the Great Commission. They're not interested in active involvement and serving in their local church. They're fascinated with the future, but they're fossilized in the present. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. God has given us his prophetic word and speaks to the future, not so that we live with just this fascination with our head in the clouds, but so that we'll live with our feet on the ground, actively involved with our sleeves rolled up, ready to work and do what God calls us to do. Involved, being salt, being light, the very thing that Jesus said his followers are in Matthew chapter 5. Now, are you tracking with me? Let me just go ahead and say, that's very important for me to say, especially since I'm beginning a study of Revelation on Wednesday nights. Let me just say, you couldn't put another person in the fellowship hall this past Wednesday night. We had every bit of 300 people packed into that fellowship hall this past Wednesday night. But if I called a prayer meeting on Wednesday night, I wonder if I'd have just as many people. Fascination with the future... It should not lead us to be complacent in the present. Instead, it ought to motivate us. That's what it really ought to do. And that's what Amos is telling God's people here in this passage. They believed that everything was fine and dandy between them and God. And yet there was this major disconnect. Look at how they were living their lives. They were taking advantage of one another. They were living materialistic lifestyles. They were exploiting the poor. There was no love for their neighbor being shown. All the while, they were very religious. They were interested in eschatology, but it had not led to a healthy anthropology. And that's what the prophet is calling God's people out for here. Now, you may think, well, how in the world could God's people become so unjust and unrighteous in their dealings with one another, all while maintaining their religious status quo? If you ask that question, then you understand there's something, there's something about the subtle nature of hypocrisy. It's so easy for us to gravitate toward religious activity that's really without reality. God's not interested in your life being full of a bunch of religious activity if there's no genuine reality, if there's nothing beneath the surface. So, God's people were living for themselves in Amos' day, but, but they had come up with all kinds of religious excuses to justify their behavior. They were nominally religious. What does that mean? They were religious in name only. That's what the New Testament says. They had a form of religion, but they had denied its power. James Boyce said something about this. He said it's important to understand two steps in the spiritual decline of religiously nominal people. Those who don't live for God, though they think they do. He said they live for self, 
And often the first stage of their decline is to put off repentance. Put off the day of reckoning. At this stage, they know what's right. They expect to do right someday. But in the meantime, they want the imagined benefits of a life of sin. He says the second stage comes when sin has so trapped them and distorted their thinking that they lose sight of what's right or wrong and even imagine their sin to be right conduct. They talk themselves into living in such a way. It's disobedience, but they've so deluded themselves and deceived themselves into actually believing that it's okay. You say, does that kind of thing happen today? Yeah, it happens today. For someone to come out and try to justify a particular way of living that is not in keeping with the character of God or the truth of God is revealed in his word, and yet all the while they say, God is the one who led me to make this decision. I have no doubt that it was some form of God that they felt led them to make a particular decision, but it wasn't the God of the Bible. It wasn't the God who's revealed himself in his word. It was their own imagination of God. It was who they thought God is. They made a God up in their own mind, and they're following that God. That's the essence of idolatry, folks. Wow, that kind of thing was happening in Amos' day. And this is what he's calling out in the lives of God's people. So worship then had become nothing more than a thin veneer of religious whitewash to serve as a cover for their sin and to cover for their idols. Kind of reminds me of a story I heard about a fella. He was driving through the country and he happened to come across an old barn that had more than a dozen targets painted on the side of this barn. And so the guy was intrigued by this, and so he pulled off his truck to the side of the road and went to take a closer look. And as he was there inspecting those targets on the side of that barn, uh, he was amazed. He saw that every one of those targets had a single hole in it, a single bullet hole, right dead of center in the bullseye. And this absolutely amazed the guy when suddenly an old man stepped out of the barn and said, can I help you? And the man said, yeah, I'd like to know who the sharpshooter is that can hit the bullseye with every single shot. And the old man said, well, that's me. I'm the one that makes every shot. And the man asked him, well, where in the world did you learn to shoot like that? He said, well, I always shoot first and then I draw a target around the bullet hole. That's how society often approaches life in God's world. We do everything we can to try to fool ourselves into thinking that we're on target when in reality, all that we've done is learn how to paint well. That's what Amos is telling his generation. They had tried to camouflage their failures with religion, but they were tragically off target. And God could see through it. And so there's an imminent arrival associated with the day of the Lord. Uh, there's this incorrect assumption. They think that it's just going to mean they're going to be off the hook and can live any way they want to. But Amos is confronting them with an inescapable accountability. He says once judgment comes, there's going to be no escape from it. I mean, look at what he says there in verse 19. He says it's going to be as if a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. 
Or if he flees the lion and the bear and runs into a house only to get bit by a snake. He's using very graphic language here to sort of point out that you can't successfully run from God. You can't successfully hide from God. And the psalmist said it this way in Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, behold, you were there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you were there. He says, if I am even found in the depths of the sea, behold, even there, you're going to find me out. Boy, Jonah learned that the hard way, didn't he? You really can't run from God. You really can't hide from God. And so there's no excuse for you to hide behind a camouflage of religion or your own works, that kind of thing. No, God can see through all of that. And Amos is saying the time is coming when God is going to pass through your midst. Unlike the time when God passed over. See, there's a difference when God passes over versus God passes through. When God passed over, what did he do? He spared Israel of judgment. Back in their Egyptian bondage, the Passover lamb, the blood had been applied to the doorpost. God passed over. But the language that's used here, God is saying, I'm going to pass through. I'm going to deal with you. So it's a reference to judgment. Folks, let me tell you something. We want God to pass over, not pass through. And the gospel tells me that in Jesus Christ, God has passed over. Christ is my Passover lamb who suffered and died and absorbed the wrath of God in my place as a sinner. The judgment of God washed over Jesus as he suffered for me on the cross. And so that's why you've got to be saved. You've got to place your faith and your trust in Jesus while you have time and while you have opportunity because the time is coming in a future day of the Lord when Christ is going to come and God is going to be passing through a sinful world. So there's a time of divine visitation. That's what this day of the Lord is referring to. Now, notice the second thing quickly. It'll be a time of honest evaluation. The day of the Lord is a day of divine visitation, but it's a day of honest evaluation. And notice there in verse 21 how God is speaking to his people and and he's weighing their religious expressions in the balance. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So, It will be a day in which things are seen for what they truly are. There will be no painted target to hide behind on that day. God is speaking first person here through his prophet. He's evaluating the religious activity of his people as he sees it. Now listen, it's interesting to me that even though there was spiritual decline in the life of the nation, religious activity was still very high. I mean, people were flocking to the shrines. They were attending religious feasts and religious assemblies. Interest levels were high. We would say it this way. Attendance was up. Giving was up. But God could see through it. The giving and the attendance and all of that, that was really not a barometer, an accurate barometer to measure whether or not there was true expression, true possession of faith in the hearts of God's people. 
What God found was spiritual routine without spiritual reality. It was man's empty religion, and it was a religion that God rejects. Why did he reject it? Well, it was insincere. Notice that he deals with their useless assemblies in verse 21. He deals with their worthless offerings in verse 22. And then he deals with their pointless melodies in verse 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs. What difference does it make? It doesn't matter to me. I hate your festivals. I'm not accepting your offerings. And I don't want to hear your empty melodies. God is seeing through it. It's all in vain because it wasn't coming from a heart of real repentance. And men and women, it is not religious activity that God is after. It is our hearts that God is after. It's your heart as a worshiper that God wants. And without your heart as a worshiper, all of this activity, it's nothing more than a useless assembly, a worthless offering, a pointless melody. That's a sobering message, isn't it? So it was insincere, and then something else, their worship really was incomplete. It was all a charade. There was no righteousness of life behind any of it. They went to their meetings, they gave their offerings, they sang their songs, all while continuing to take advantage of their neighbors and live unjust lives. In other words, their Sunday didn't line up with their Monday. They weren't loving their neighbor. Their faith was not being evident through righteous works and just works in terms of their social ethics and their relationships. No, they were greedy. They were materialistic. They were selfish. They were self-centered. People were a means to an end. And they had religious excuses to justify their behavior. And God's looking through it and he says... That's not it, y'all. What is it that God was interested in? Well, look at verse 24. And verse 24 really is the key to the book of Amos. Let justice roll down like waters. Let righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness, this is, this is the truth of God, the holiness of God in principle. Justice, this is the holiness of God in practice. God is saying, what I want you to, to have and live with is the right principle, the righteousness of God that I've revealed in my word as far as your social ethics are concerned. And then justice, justice, this is the practical outworking of the righteousness of God in your societal life, in your relationships, in your business dealings, in your family dynamic. The relationships that you have with people in your life. Not self-centered, selfish behavior where you take advantage of others and consider yourself better than others. It's interesting that it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who used this very verse, Amos 5.24, in his famous I Have a Dream speech. The idea is that of the righteousness of God being applied, folks, to our relationships with one another. Oh, this is a big deal as far as God is concerned. What good is it if I have religion, but now that religion doesn't lead me 
to pursue righteous dealings with those around me. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. You had a priest, you had a Levite. There's a man who's, who fell among thieves laying in a ditch on the side of the road, but the priest, the Levite, they don't have time to minister to the guy in need and to show true compassion and exercise true righteousness because they've got meetings to attend. They've got religious services to attend to. But Jesus says the, the Samaritan comes along and from his own purse, at great expense to himself, he ministers to the man puts the man up in an end. If there's any cost incurred, he pays the cost. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Aren't you grateful for that? That's what he did in your life. That's what he did in my life. The high king of heaven left his glory above and came into this world in need, laid aside his heavenly robes of splendor and glory and found this poor beggar in the ditch. And showed me grace unmerited, untold. Was merciful to me, a sinner. And listen, how dare I, as a recipient of that mercy and grace, live my life to take advantage of other people? So someone who's experienced grace ought to be somebody who shows grace in terms of my social ethics. And that's the point. That's the point. So here's, here's some application here. Has your faith led to a major impact as far as the way you're living your life. I'm not talking about just attending church, being a religious person. I'm talking about the nitty-gritty of where you live your life because God sees through empty religion. One final thing about the day of the Lord that Amos mentions here, and I'll finish with this, but not only is it a day of divine visitation, and honest evaluation, but notice it ought to be a day of present motivation. Again, you look at the language of verse 24. Personal responsibility is being conveyed in that verse. God's people must not be content to live a compartmentalized life. Well, I've got my church here, and I've got my family here, and I've got my job here. No, true New Testament Christianity, true biblical faith is something that's all-encompassing, that influences the way that you make decisions. It impacts the way that you use your resources. It impacts the way that you steward your time and your relationships. James says that faith, if it be genuine, it will be evident through our works. And so God is saying to his people, especially down in verse 25, he says, listen, sacrifices and offerings and all of that, back during your wilderness wanderings, he said, do you think that that's really what I was interested in? Was it the sacrifices in and of themselves that mattered? No, it was their obedience that mattered. It was their worship offered out of a heart that loved and obeyed God that resulted in love for their fellow man. This was the issue. What flowed from their lives and into their relationships, righteousness and justice. This is the evidence of a heart that's truly been redeemed. But sadly, instead, verse 26 says that they love their idols. 
God's people had a religious facade that covered it all, but they really loved their idols deep down within their heart. And notice the names that are mentioned there. They're, they're false gods. Sikuth and Kayun. Idols or images that you've made for yourselves. These were the deities of the Assyrians. Now, why is that important? Now, let me just say this. One of the things that stands out about Old Testament Israel is that they constantly fell into the trap of being lured away from the one true God. They were enticed by the gods of the Canaanites. You want to know why? Canaanite religion and the Canaanite worldview allowed for people to live unethical, immoral, unjust lives, all while having the favor of the gods on their life. They could live however they wanted to and still claim to have the favor of God on their life. That's why Canaanite religion was so enticing to Israel in the Old Testament. And in particular, the Assyrian gods, the Israelites in the northern kingdom were intrigued by these Assyrian gods. And here's the irony of it. It would be within a generation, 40 years, that the gods of the very people those Assyrian gods that they worshipped. It would be the Assyrian armies that would be in the streets of the northern kingdom carrying God's people away into captivity. Before the Assyrian armies were on the streets of Samaria, listen to me, the Assyrian gods were in a prominent place in the hearts of God's people. And that's what idolatry always does. The very things that we worship in the place of God will become the very things that destroy us and sap the life from us. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Wow. I don't know who it was that said it, but I love this statement. I want to live this day and evaluate everything concerning this present day in light of that day. What day? The day of the Lord. The day when Jesus Christ comes again. A day of divine visitation. A day of honest evaluation. Men and women, it ought to be a day for us of present motivation. Would you stand with me as we pray? Wow. Peter says that the day of the Lord will come. It's going to come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works done on it will be exposed. And he says, and since this is the case... What sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Are you ready for Christ's return? Let me tell you, if if you're living one way, if you're saying one thing but living another, you're not ready for his return. And in that way, I'm telling you, I think the, the message of Amos is like an arrow straight to your heart. Every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Oh, you're in the business of changing lives, Lord. Not just making people religious on the surface. 
but giving men and women a new heart. That's the gospel. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. That there's hope, there's salvation, there's eternal life, forgiveness to be found for even the chief of sinners. There's a window of opportunity. But Lord, who knows when that window of opportunity is going to close and the day of the Lord will come. Lord, may we live and evaluate this day and everything that we do this day in light of that future day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.